Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Hey, we're um, between series. And so tonight I thought I'd share something that's been on my heart. And so we're going to talk about the word and the image. And uh, let's start with uh, just thinking about Israel's uh, history and Israel's worship. It's a really peculiar thing to the ancient mind that when you uh, visit the temples of the ancient world, you usually find some kind of image that's there of the deity. Like if you were to go to the temple of Diana in Ephesus, you would find a large image of Diana. Um, And uh, you find that throughout the temples of the ancient world. But uh, it would be a peculiar thing when you uh, visit the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem, you wouldn't find an image of God there. And so I, I have one slide for us tonight. The rest of it's on paper. Are you ready for this? Okay, here's the temple, the Holy of Holies. You see the holy place here. Everybody familiar with how the temple tabernacle system kind of works? You go through the outer court and into sort of that inner courtyard area, and past that you get into what's known as the holy place, okay? And you've got golden lampstands, table of showbread, altar of incense. And then there's the veil, right? And the veil separates the holy place from from What? The Holy of Holies, right? Or the Most Holy Place, it's sometimes called. And you see the cherubim there, and then between the cherubim, you see the ark. What's missing from this temple? Uh, in the, If you were looking at it from the mind of a, a typical idolatrous worshiper, what would be missing from this temple? Any, any image of God, right? That that would be uh, really conspicuous, or is it inconspicuous? I always get those two confused. Uh, but it would be uh, it would be obvious to the ancient mind that there's no image of any kind, and this was true in Israel's worship because God commanded it so. He commanded there to be no images of Him whatsoever, not even to worship Him through images. Okay, so uh, He prohibited that, and so um, you wouldn't find uh, an image of a deity within the temple, or the tabernacle. Uh, Jacques Ellul, in his, his uh, book, The Humiliation of the Word, he said, the temple or tabernacle, maybe I should leave this up, the temple or the tabernacle uh, can contain a representation of things which suggest the glory of this God in parabolic fashion, but nothing else. In other words, there can be things that that uh, draw to mind what kind of God he is, but no images of him. What are some of the things that would draw to mind who God is? What's that? Okay, a pillar of smoke. But I'm, I'm thinking here in the temple, there are some things that are representative, but there's no image of God, right? Think of, go ahead. Okay. What about, uh, what, okay, the bread? What else? The, the light? Okay. Well, anything in the Ark of the Covenant remind you of God? 
Okay, the mercy seat, which is what's supposed to be on the top of the, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And who sits on the mercy seat? God himself, right? But of course, in the tabernacle, there's, there's nothing sitting on top of the mercy seat, at least no visible image. And then how about inside the Ark? The Ten Commandments? What else? Okay, Aaron's rod and uh, the manna, okay? So God's provision, God's power, God's law, all of those things are represented there. So there's representations of who he is, but the one thing that God didn't want them to do, and the prophets were clear on this, is to have some kind of visible image or representation of who God is. Because images restrict, and so if you think of God in the temple, where is he not? Or even if you think of the, the temple as the epicenter of his presence, what does that suggest as you get further and further away from the temple? Further away from his presence. Some people still think about church that way. Like the closer you get to church, the holier you need to be. And when you leave this place, you gotta, you know, you're kind of in some kind of descent away from God's presence. But that's not the case, is it? Okay, what else uh, would be related to that? Uh, that would suggest God's presence is in a place. But what do we know about God's presence? He, he's present everywhere, right? What do, what do we call that? What's the, the $10 theological word? Omnipresence. Did you know that? You knew that, didn't you? All right. Uh, omnipresence just means everywhere present. Okay. And then uh, God is reduced, if we have him as an image, to what is shown. And so there's a reason for all of this. The image obscures God's glory by suggesting something other or lesser than what he really is. And since that conveys false ideas about God, um, depictions of him are forbidden in worship. So you've got a scripture sheet there. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible if you like, but I put some of the scriptures there. Um, and one of the things that comes out early and often in Scripture, I've just got a few examples of this, is uh, God doesn't really dwell in these temples. So 1 Kings chapter 8, the context is that Solomon has finally built the temple David wanted to build. Uh, David moved the capital from Shiloh to Jerusalem, and that was the holy city, and he wanted to bring the tabernacle there, and so he brought the tabernacle there, and he noticed how tattered it was, and he wanted to do something a little more permanent, a little more. He looked at his house, and he said, man, I live in a nice house. The tabernacle is a shambles. I need to do something different with that. And so he wants to build, but God won't let him build, and he says, I'm going to let your son do that. Solomon, uh, David gathers the resources and gets everything ready, and then he dies. He passes on the throne to Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple. And at the end of building the temple, he dedicates the temple. And we have this long passage that is a prayer and a dedication of the temple. And in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, verse 27 and following says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I've built. So I think he probably thought as he's throwing all of this money into it, he's bringing cedars in from Lebanon. This thing's getting more and more spectacular. He's thinking, what a wonderful thing this is. And then the realization sets in that this cannot be big enough to contain the God that we serve. And that, that's true. That's true here. I hope you know God doesn't live in this building. I've said it over and over again. This building's creepy when nobody's here. 
it's dark and it's quiet and nobody's here. It can feel a little creepy. And I've always felt that way about churches. And it's not because I'm afraid or think that there's some evil presence here, but the presence of God isn't dwelling in buildings. He cannot be contained. And, and uh, you would think in an Old Testament mindset, people would think that he does, but he doesn't. And so Solomon recognizes that. Isaiah, who saw the Lord, he was uh, praying in the temple, and he, he sees a vision. We should, we should make sure that we understand. He's not seeing the Lord. He's seeing a vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And uh, he heard the, thresh, the threshold shake and the, the shouting of the, um, the seraphim with one another, the cherubim with one another, shouting back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The, full, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so it changed Isaiah. It made him uh, look at his culture a little differently, even look at himself differently. What did he say when he sees the Lord? Woe is me, I'm unclean. I find that this is another topic, but I find it really interesting when people come to the awareness that God is there. Often their response is, wow, I'm unholy in comparison with the great and holy God. Well, in chapter 66, uh, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where, are, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble. At my word, I wanted to include that last part because it really plays in well with what we're going to talk about in just a moment. But Isaiah's rec- um, recognition is that God can't fit in a structure we could build for Him. Okay, He's too big for that. He's He's too awesome for that. Okay, so now jump ahead to the New Testament with me in Acts chapter seven. Who's speaking here? Do you think, if you know the book of Acts? Not yet. Paul doesn't get converted till chapter 9. Hmm? Stephen. Stephen, right? And Stephen is preaching. Some people think the reason he is preaching this is because he's a Hellenistic Jew. It means he doesn't necessarily live in uh, in Israel or in the land of Palestine, but he lives outside. And the name like Stephen suggests that he's, he's Greek-speaking. And so maybe as he, they think that he's saying these things because he's not as devoted to the temple as he ought to be. But what I think he's doing is he's reiterating Old Testament theology, the theology of God, that he cannot fit in temples. And so he says in chapter 7, the thing that gets, starts getting everybody really mad, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Okay, they're mad. The religious leaders are mad because the temple is their domain. That's the place of their power. If you take away that and suggest that God is everywhere, they're going to lose their bread and butter, they think. And plus, they don't like the fact that he's declaring uh, the name of Jesus. Okay, Acts chapter 17. Who do you think is speaking there? Paul. Paul, that's right. Uh, it's the apostle Paul, and he is, um, he is in Athens He's uh, been invited because he was preaching in the marketplace. Somebody said, hey, you ought to come speak at the, uh, at the Oropagus, Mars Hill. The Greek is Oropagus. In uh, Latin, it would be something like Mars Hill. And so he says, you guys ought to, you ought to come speak here. And it says, those people love to do nothing more than to 
to talk about and listen to new ideas. So Paul is proclaiming a new idea, and he he uh, starts in just the most ingenious way by connecting with their culture and saying, you guys uh, pay homage to uh, some unknown deity, and that's the one I'm here to proclaim to you. And he talks about him, and he says, this is the one who's revealed in Jesus Christ. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, verse 24 Uh, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. This is the same thing Solomon was saying. This is the same thing Isaiah is saying. This is the same thing that uh, Stephen was saying. And it tells us Paul was there when Stephen said those things. And so what we see here is um, the understanding that God can't fit in these particular places. And there's there's no image that could represent him that would fit in one of these buildings. I don't care how big you make it. Okay? So that's really important that the image the image won't work to communicate what God is like. The image won't work for that. But uh, we see in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 the idea that God doesn't reveal himself in images. He reveals himself uh, through a word. Look at Hebrews 1. 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Let me ask you, before we read on, what kind of vehicle was used for communication here? People, okay. People doing what? Speaking, writing, okay. Both those things, okay? So uh, if you're speaking and writing, what what kind of container symbols are you using for that communication? Words, right? Are you with me? Okay, they're using words to communicate. Not so much images, but words. Spoken uh, to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he has made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So here we have a, 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 a picture that comes on the scene, but Jesus is described as the word. This is his, he's the expression of what God has said, and he's the fulfillment of what the prophets have said, Right? Uh, in John 1, what's the word that's, that's used to describe Jesus? The Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so he is, he is uh, the Word of God. This is the expression of what God's like. And so it seems to me that when Jesus finally comes, it, it does call him the representation, the exact representation of what he's like, I think there, I can't remember, it seems like the word icon might be used, but I know it's definitely used in Colossians when it talks about him being the image of the Father. Okay, so uh, here we're starting to get an image, but it's first of all a word spoken, and then it becomes an image. And it seems to me that the image is reserved for Jesus. No statue will do. No static statue of what God is like will ever do. But Jesus being the image of God, that's a different story. We get to see something 
of what he's like. So the point is not Jesus's physical uh, features here. Okay, so when it it talks about him being the image of the Father or the exact representation of his being, I think because we live in a materialistic culture, our mind typically goes to what he looked like must be like a representation of what the Father looked like. And the Bible, it doesn't really talk about what Jesus looked like except when it says that there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. Okay, So it's not concerned with that. We're concerned with appearance. The Bible's not so concerned with that in regards to Jesus. Uh, what it's telling us here is that he, he is showing us something of what God is like. The image of God is describing his way, his, his wisdom, his love, his dealings with people. And uh, this is like seeing what the Father is like. Was it Thomas that said, show us the Father? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, so, or was that Philip? It was one of those two. Um, he's, saying, he's saying that if you've seen how I act, if you've seen how I talk, or you heard how I've talked, if you've seen what I've done, you've seen something of what the Father, uh, what he's like. And so probably more to the point, what you see Jesus doing is the work of the Father. He said, I don't do anything except what I see my Father doing. And so it's the plan of the Father being fulfilled through Jesus. But God doesn't want us to build or make or worship him through images. Okay, so uh, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5, You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or on earth beneath or in the waters below, and you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, this, it seems to me, you may disagree on this, but it seems to me this is not saying you you shouldn't, like, carve uh, a dove or something like that. Okay, some people have taken it to mean that. What this is saying is you shall not make these things to worship them. There's a difference there. Like, if you draw a picture of a bird which I did not long ago. I don't think I violated this command because I'm not worshiping that. This is saying don't make these things in order to bow down to worship them. Okay, but that's sometimes what people have done. In fact, not only have they done that um, to represent other gods, but at times they've used images to worship the true God. Is that right or wrong? It's wrong. Okay, uh, let me show you an example of those. I can point you to another one, but let's talk about this one first. Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 through 5. And I put the NAS here because of how it translates this, and I'll, uh, and I'll refer to some of the other translations in just a moment. But it says this, Then he, Aaron, he took the gold from their hands, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into a cast metal calf, and they said, and then, and they said, "This is your God, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, "Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord." Hey, okay, I'd just like you to notice something that I think is funny in this story. Every time, is that Aaron, when Moses confronts him, says, "This thing just popped out." of the fire that way. Anybody remember that? Like he's, now this thing just happened. Well, it tells us right here that they made a cast and a mold in order for this thing to look like a bull. Okay. So this is what they're doing. 
Um, it says in the NAS, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. If you have the KJV, the NIV, the ESV, almost any other translation, it will have on the surface, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, These are the gods. Okay, And I want to suggest to you why I think they're worshiping Yahweh through this. First of all, I'd like to encourage you to keep in mind the grammatic possibility here. Uh, the word that's used for God here or gods is Elohim. And Elohim is the plural form of El, and El is the generic name for God in the Old Testament. Okay, Does everybody follow that so far? El is the singular generic name. Elohim is plural. Okay, And so why would it have a plural word when it's talking about a singular deity? Well, uh, this is a consistent way that it's it's used in the Old Testament. In fact, when it said when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the word that's used there is Elohim, plural. Not interesting. Now it's not gods; it's God. The verb in that particular context is singular, and so we know they're probably using the plural form in order to uh, communicate some kind of majesty. It's a way you might do that in Hebrew. Okay, so. That's probably, that's one of the reasons this could be, could be done. So Genesis 1.1 has a comparable grammatical form where it's a plural word. So God's God. I'm going to tell you why I think this is significant in a moment. If, if you want to check out for a moment, uh, you can think about something else. But uh, stick with me, and I think we'll, we'll learn something here. So then I'd like you to notice here that what comes out of the fire is not two golden calves or three golden calves or four golden calves or five, but one, okay? It doesn't make much sense to say these are the gods when it's one idol representing. Okay, are you with me? The third thing is uh, there was an announcement that followed all this. And what was the announcement? If you looked there at your paper, um, Verse 5, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So he builds the golden calf, then he builds an altar in front of it, and then he says tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. Okay, so that's why I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to worship Yahweh through a representation of a bull. Not other gods, Yahweh. Okay, and then the, th- the fourth thing is really interesting. This comes from an article in Evangelical Quarterly from uh, 1973. And the author of this is John Oswalt. And he says, do you have that quote there, John Oswalt's quote? Okay, it would be just below. Do you? Oh, no, that's not it. So uh, this is John Oswalt. I should have left that quote in there said, against uh, Egyptian religious background, um, the confusion between creator and the created, sorry, sorry, let me start over here. It is against Egyptian religious background of uh, the confusion between the creator and the created that the meaning of the golden calves can be understood. At one moment, Amon-Ra, this is in Egypt, where did the people come from before they built the golden calf? They came from Egypt, okay? So it's... Uh, probable that they were informed or at least educated in Egyptian religious ideas a little bit, right? That's part of the reason for 
some of the things that happen at the Exodus. And I won't go much into that, but he goes on to say um, that it's in this context, the Egyptian context, that the golden calves can be understood. At one moment, Amon-Ra is the hidden, invisible, ineffable, almighty God, but at precisely the same instance, he is the life force so powerfully portrayed in the strength and sexual prowess of the bull. He is the invisible God, and he is the bull. So what this is saying is that in Egyptian mythology, they believed in a transcendent God, but that his visible representation was a bull. And so what I think is happening here is that these these Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and they're taking Egyptian ideas, and they're applying it to their religion, even though it's wrong, even though God has already said it's wrong. Now, Moses is about ready to come down the mountain and break some tablets, isn't he? Because this is wrong, what's happened here. But I think what they're doing, and you'll see this later on, uh, there was another man when Solomon's son, what's his name? Rehoboam, when he became king, the kingdom split into two. And uh, the opposing king's name was what? Jeroboam. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, right? And Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was known for a particular sin. Can anybody remember what that was? He built two golden calves, right? One in the north and one in the south. He said, if I don't do this, people are going to go to Jerusalem. He built, he built a visible representation, a visible fascination to keep people from going and worshiping at the temple. Where did Jeroboam flee from Solomon before he came back? Anybody know? He went to Egypt. So these are Egyptian ideas being applied to the worship of Yahweh. They're secular ideas or counter-religious ideas being applied to the worship of Yahweh. And we have to be very careful when we worship God not to bring our cultural baggage in with us. We have to leave it at the door. We don't worship God through images. Are you with me? We don't worship God through images. We worship the invisible God that cannot be contained within what an image would try to portray. And so this is part of the problem. Now, I have to admit to you, there are visions. God doesn't communicate solely through, um, through you know, verb phrases or, or whatever. He, um, he communicates through visions, and he demonstrates through miracles and at times, you know, signs and wonders. Uh, there are visions which were seen, okay? Moses had a vision. Can you think of anybody else that had a vision in the Bible? Daniel, good, that wasn't on my list. Somehow that slipped through the cracks. Daniel, that's a good one. Man, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, who else? Okay, Paul. I don't know. I don't know if the Bible tells us. How about Isaiah? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Ezekiel. Who else? Peter, the sheet coming down. Uh, Ezekiel, the wheel within the wheel, right? The vision of the valley of dry bones. Uh, Who else? Stephen, Jacob. Hey, man, your list is bigger than mine. That's great. Let's see if we forgot anybody here. Uh, How about Zechariah? And then uh, anyone near the end of the Bible we can think of that had a big-time vision? (laughs) Okay. Good. Let's remember John. I was, I was, 
in the spirit on the Lord's day. All right, so all these have visions, and and then there are miracles that take place. And what are some of the big miracles of the Bible? What's the primary miracle of the Old Testament? The parting of the Red Sea. I would just I would include if you, if you don't mind, let's just include the Exodus as one massive deliverance miracle. It's several miracles, but it's one big thing God is doing. And that uh, was supposed to be something that parents were supposed to tell their children on and on. In fact, one of the Psalms is even written about it, about the deliverance that comes out of uh, God delivering from Egypt. That was like their, that was their testimony. And so they were to repeat that over and over again. They were to tell about it. What's the primary miracle of the New Testament if there was, if there was just one? The resurrection of Jesus. And then we have all the miracles of Jesus, don't we? All of his life. We have miracles that are, are done by the Lord. Now, not all of us were there to see that. I used to kid myself when I was young. I don't think I thought I was kidding myself. But if I were there to see Jesus do those things, I would have no problem believing, I told myself. But there were people that were there, and they saw it, and they still didn't believe but I think the, the one thing that I wanted to say with all of this is that even though there are visions, like these guys like Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Peter and Paul and John and Jacob and all the other guys, the reason we know about those visions is because they communicated them with words. And the reason that we know about those miracles that took place is because somebody communicated them in words. So it comes back again to words and not to images, primarily. They're communicated in words. Images can be impactful, but they're not always articulate in the way that language is. Um, You can see Jesus doing a particular thing, but sometimes people misunderstood what he was doing, and when he communicated what he was doing, even the disciples, they didn't understand what he was doing. And he would have to come along and say, are you, so, are you guys so slow to understand? I almost see him saying this in kind of the gentle joking way. Are you guys so slow to understand that you can't grasp, grasp what this is all about? Uh, he's trying to, to uh, communicate what all of these things are about. Images are impactful, but they're not articulate. And I wonder if once again... Uh, as God's people, sometimes we let other things get in the way of his word. You know, um, one of the reasons that on Sunday morning we don't just get up and show a video every week of maybe a Bible story or something like that is because we're convinced that God communicates through word. God communicates through word, through spoken word, through written word. That's how he communicates to us, not just images. We need to have it articulated to us in words. Even the image of Jesus hanging on the cross doesn't have much meaning for people if it's not described in words. He died for our sins, right? To see a person on a cross wouldn't have meant that to everybody. They needed to hear, he died for us. He died for us. So the words are really important So images can be impactful, but they're not articulate in the way that language is. And I wonder if, once again, people are adrift towards those idolatries against the Word. Many, I think there's many people who don't want the Word. They want 
they want it all in pictures. And I'm, I'm going to confess to you, when I go to a restaurant, give me a menu with pictures. Okay? I don't, I do spend enough time reading. I don't want to read the menu. Uh, so I can relate to that a little bit. The idea that it's easier, it takes a lot less mental work to look through the pictures than it does to read through the words. And so there's, I think there's a little bit of a cultural drift away from the word, away from words in particular and towards images. And I'll read Postman in just a moment. But I wonder if that's the case. People want pictures and many don't want word. They want, they want feelings. That might be the other alternative is I want a feeling. I don't want a word. I want a feeling. And it seems this goes against the nature of what relational Christianity is about. God has revealed himself through the word and what should have sustained the people through exile and times when they felt God was distant and times when they were struggling was not an emotion, but a word. And it's done that again and again for people that they clung to his words, not to an emotion. If you hang on to an emotion, you'll be up and down like a roller coaster. But if you hold on to his word, it will moor you and keep you grounded. Are you with me? That's so important. And I'm not just saying that because I know your business. It seems to me that this is a problem in the around the world for Christians. Is that we're so we've gotten into this uh, trend that everything has to have an emotion to it. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of times when the emotion and the truth don't always line up. And I'm not looking here tonight for a devil behind every bush. But it seems to me that the conventional tactic of any uh, in any warfare is to disrupt communication. Would you agree with that? Like if you can break up communication from the head uh, through the ranks, you'll you'll win victory. Do you agree? That's a good tactic in warfare. If you can disrupt communication, if you can confuse it, if you can cut it off completely, you could probably win the battle. And so I think a primary tactic for the enemy is to take us away from communication, to take us away from true knowledge of God, to disconnect us from word and make us think that we can now approach God on the basis of some kind of image, a mental image, some kind of image that our culture has put out, or we can know him through some other way. So that brings us to the humiliation of the word. History will probably bear out that a culture will never rise above its language. Language is an incredible gift. We're doing it right now. Do you realize this? This is incredible. That whatever thoughts um, have been gleaned from God's Word, uh, whatever things have been learned from His Word can be thought through and processed and spoken. And then hopefully, as you're listening, it can be taken in and received, and processed, and learned, and if it's accurate, and truth communicates to truth, and we hear what God has to say, and we can be changed by it, it's pretty incredible. Sierra? Yeah, I think, too, that uh, when it comes to words, I think it's, um, I think it's the most superior form of communication. It's better than pictures. People say picture are worth a thousand, they're worth a thousand words. That, that might be true, but how how accurate are those words? You know, and you can... Uh, let me go on because I'm going to come to this more in just a moment. Thanks for 
sharing that thought. That's good. Um, images tend to be used a lot of times in manipulation, I think, and words too. But I think uh, when we're processing through words, hopefully we can, we can learn to distinguish truth from error. Um, okay, so no, no uh, culture, I think, will ever rise above its language. And it's an incredible gift. Uh, with language and communication, relationships possible. We have to have some kind of a shared or agree upon um, language or coinage as we, we communicate. And this is one of the reasons, um, and I know probably it gets annoying, so I sympathize with it, that I define words a lot. And if it feels like we're being super cerebral, I want to confess to you that I think it's words and communication are so important that we have to try to get it right. And so if that's annoying to you, I beg your pardon on it. But it's something that we have to try to do, and I want to be as accurate as I can, even though it can be nauseating. So I think uh, uh, with, with language, relationships possible, and a mutual understanding can be granted. And so at the Tower of Babel, when language is divided, cultures were divided. Not only were cultures divided, but I would suggest to you this is what gave rise to the idolatries of the world. Where, where did the different understandings of what God is like come from? I think when people, people are already idolatrous in their heart, but when they moved away from a common language, I think it began to breed diversity and idolatry so that people began to go after other gods or redefine in their own language what God was like. And this leads to a diversity of religions around the world. And so I don't know uh, exactly what all happened, but the net result is a divided world and warring tribes and a diversity of religions. And I think that you'll see that with, um, I can't be 100% sure on this, but I heard something from one of my Bible college professors the other day, and he said that um, the difference between Hebrew and Egyptian hieroglyphs is that Egyptian hieroglyphs didn't have tense to it. You know what I mean by tense? Like, Past tense, present tense, future tense, perfect tense, all of that. And when you can't communicate tense, that really restricts your ability to communicate. But he said Hebrew has those. And what I, occurred to me is that that suggests to me that Hebrew was probably one of the more advanced languages of the day. Now, we don't think of it like that because uh, uh, it seems from where we sit that Hebrew is kind of rudimentary. Uh, and in fact, later on, Greek surpasses it in its ability to articulate specifics. And so it, it seems appropriate to me that Greek, which develops later, um, that it would be more appropriate to communicate the language in the New Testament. And so it's got Hebrew ideas, but it's encased in Greek language. And I think it's phenomenal and, and articulate. And I think this is God's chosen way of communicating to us. And then, of course, we have our translations of that. And a good translation will help us to understand what was written there. But I think that uh, Hebrew must have been one of the more articulate languages of its day, and Greek as well, and, and certainly in its breadth. So here's what Neil Postman says about American culture. And Postman died in, I think, 1997, 98, 99, somewhere around there. Uh, and so when he was talking about this, his big, his big adversary was television media. Okay, so he said, 
we're moving away from a print culture to an image culture. He wrote a book that I would encourage everybody to read. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a little book, and you'll find it pretty fascinating, I think. I did. Uh, and it talks about information, uh, how it's changed. I don't know that Postman was a Christian. I think he was Jewish. But I think his ideas were pretty profound. Here's what he says in one of his quotes, and I think this comes from amusing ourselves to death. Americans no longer talk to each other. Now, let that set in while we think about this fact. This is before the days of social media, where people can sit across the table from each other and be on their phones and not talk. Okay, So he said, Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They don't exchange ideas. They exchange images. They don't argue with uh, propositions. That's uh, propositional statements of truth, statements of truth that can either be agreed upon or disagreed. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. The way that you convince, in other words, he's saying the way that you convince somebody is you get somebody up there that looks good, that's articulate in the way that they speak, and people will buy into it because of the image, not so much because of the idea. And that's where we're in danger is when we stop working through ideas. So the humiliation of the word, if that's really what's happening, means that God will be ignored because he's communicating himself through words and the word. It's going to keep us from saving knowledge. It'll be overlooked. And transforming instruction will be bypassed. Some people won't tolerate sitting like you're doing tonight and listening to ideas. They won't do it. It takes too long. We've got to be in and out. We've got to get back to whatever else we're doing with our lives that's so important. And I understand there are important things, and I'm telling you, I don't talk most of the week. I save up all my talking for you on Wednesdays and Sundays. So this is the sum total of what I've got to say in a week's time, this and Sunday morning. Um. But it's sad, and it talks about that in Scripture. There's going to come a day when men will not put up with sound doctrine, but in order to suit their own desires, they'll follow after teachers who will give them whatever their itching ears want to hear. See, in the past, it was because of ignorance of the Word where people couldn't access it. You know, um, during the early part of Christianity, there was a time when um, culture started to shift away from Latin, within the Roman Empire to their regional languages. And the church continued to do things in Latin. And after a while, even the priests didn't know Latin. It's one of the uh, reasons we have the little phrase abracadabra is because they didn't know the right words to say when it came to converting the bread and the wine into the body of Christ. And they came up with this gibberish form, abracadabra. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And so they were even, even the priests were ignorant of Latin, but they continued to do it and it had no meaning for people. And so you can imagine why there was massive revival when the Bible's translated into the language of the people. It's fascinating to me. But um, before, people just, they couldn't read for themselves. They had to take what their priests told them. And so there was a massive, especially during the Reformation time, a massive thrust. Let's educate people so they can read the Bible for themselves. William Tyndale said, if I have my way, the plowboy in the field will know more scripture than the Pope in Rome. He is, that, was his, that was his passion. He wanted people to be able to read. 
And they, he wanted them to be able to read the Bible in their language because the, the, the Word of God is transformational. And so it was his passion. That was the old problem. The old problem was ignorance. Today, the issue may not be so much ignorance of the Word as we despise the Word. And because of that, we can't receive knowledge. Second Timothy 3, 7 talks about always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. I'm going to skip through some of this, but let me, um, let me point out some scriptures that I think are important. The universe was created by the Word of God. When God communicates, it's as if it's action. You know, when He speaks a word, God's Word has the promise of action with it. Uh, sometimes the action takes place immediately, and sometimes it takes place in time, but he doesn't speak without effect. Are you with me on that? So when he communicates in words, it has power behind it. His character and his speech are consistent with one another. Our speech, by comparison, is not the same as action, right? When God speaks, he's speaking in good faith, it's going to happen. When we speak, maybe we're speaking better than we know, uh, or not as well as we, we don't know as well as we should, okay, when we speak. Um, where was I? Our speech by comparison is not the same as his because we're, sometimes we're insincere. Uh, we're not sovereign. We don't have all power, so we can't always make it happen. We're forgetful, at least I am. And we're not careful with what we say. And so we say a lot of words that don't come to pass. And then not only that, but the word has been denigrated a little bit by, um, by our commercialism. Like people will say anything that they think you want to hear in order to sell their product to you. Is that true? Okay. And, and sometimes, you know, we get a little bit uh, gun shy. What's the right word for that? Well, we get cynical on life, nevertheless, because we've been, we feel like we've been sold a bill of goods. Somebody says, this is the, this is the best one, and we, we go and get it, and it's not the best one. Somebody else says, that's the best one. Well, which one's best? And so, uh, when God speaks, he speaks with purpose. He remembers. He's sovereign. He can make it happen, and he always speaks in good faith. Isaiah fifty five eleven. My word goes, uh, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And so what this means for us is that God's word has consequences to our lives. It can be relied upon as dependable and transformational. In fact, uh, it's to be relied upon more than food. And so it follows, it, to me it follows, when, when uh, God says, you can see there the verse, uh, Deuteronomy 8, 3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That sounds like we're being wildly spiritual and uh, unrealistic. But it seems to me that if the word of God sustains all of creation, that him giving us bread is a lesser issue. Like whether we have bread or not seems to be a lesser issue than the world falling apart. Are you with me? He's holding all things together by his powerful word. Uh, Amos chapter 8 verse 11 talks about the dreary day when people cannot find the word of God because they've neglected it so long. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Listen, this is scary. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, 
but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. I think maybe the issue in our day is not so much that the word of God's not out there, but there's so much other glut that it'd be hard to weed out fact from fiction. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's so much noise. It's finding where we need to look for truth. That's really important. And so you might think tonight, this is important to me because I love words, um, and I do, but the reason I love words is because God has revealed himself through words. I'm a television kid. I have to be honest with you that I grew up watching television, and I still like to watch TV. And so I like the images. It's a little, probably a little bit of a contradiction in me, not a hypocrisy, because I'm confessing that to you. But um, I'm saying this to say that I'm not coming from the place where reading was the most important thing. Or even, I, well, my parents read the Bible, they read it in our house, and they gave me a good example in that regard. But loving words for me is the byproduct of loving the Bible and not vice versa. I don't love the Bible because I love words. My love for words came from loving the Bible and saying, if this is what God says, it's a treasure, and I need to dig. And I want to know what he said, and I want to know what it means. In other words, my motivation is not thinking we should all love words because I do. Okay, but because we should all love the medium through which God has chosen to communicate, and that's through words and not so much through images. Where there are images, images are communicated through words. And I think it's important for each of us to decide how we're going to deal with this world of moving towards, if not images, at least the dumbing down of language. Come on, are you with me on that? Can you see it even just a little bit? Like, we don't need to say be right back anymore. We can see BRB. We can say BRB. We know how to get there, and we can scrunch our words up into little uh, little bitty abbreviations, and we can use uh, emojis now. We don't even have to use words anymore. And I'm not sure that uh, I'm not so... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if an emoji Bible came out before long. And if it does, don't buy it. So this is the new thing. Let's let's cling to that we're going to be people of the Word. Can we do that? Let's be people of the Word. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's going to open up a big can. Um, I think as people got further away from biblical truth and tradition started to develop, and this is what happens when we distance ourselves from the Bible, that it might seem like we've taken one innocent little step, but one innocent little step leads to another, and then it gets further away. And I think what happened was in time, people became more and more ignorant of the Word, and there was a um, syncretism that happened where some of the um, surrounding cultures insisted that if we're going to worship God, we could do it through images. And then, of course, you know that after the conversion of Constantine, I want to say this, it's important, it may never come up in conversation with anybody else, but some people believe that Christianity only became uh, powerful or successful or began to take root because Constantine, Constantine was converted. By the time Constantine was converted, Christianity was already overwhelmingly 
was already like almost half of the Roman Empire. So it wasn't Constantine, okay? But I think when he came in and it became popular to be a Christian and no longer you had to pay a price to be a Christian, like you might have to pay with your life anymore. Um, and when then there started to come in people in the church that weren't really Christians for the right reasons. And they brought a lot of cultural baggage. And we get further away even from the top down. There began to be some who... Um, they weren't stringent in their understanding and application of the Bible. And I can't tell you exactly what day they started saying, but uh, it seems to me there's a Pope Gregory that had some big influence on that. So any other questions or thoughts? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, there are influencers out there. Anybody else have a thought or? All right. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention tonight. Let's stand. Let's thank God that he's given us the word of God. And I would encourage you, one great application for this message is read your Bible and read it tonight. Okay. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in your word and the uh, implied, if not the express statement from all of this is that you're too big to be contained in images. You're bigger than all of that. And we pray that you help us to trust you and see you as the big God that you are, a God who fills the universe, who fills all in all. And I pray that, Lord, uh, you would help us to live in a manner that's worthy of that calling that we've been given. Help us, Lord, not to be driven by images. Help parents, Lord, to know how to communicate to their kids the importance of the written word and the spoken word. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to value preaching and teaching, that you help us to value the reading of scriptures and uh, the reading of good books. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to think clearly. It's every person's moral responsibility to think. And I pray that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.